0: Wish you were in early on some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020. With Our Crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our Crowd investors have benefited from Our Crowd companies IPOing, like Beyond Meat, or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Today, you can join Our Crowd's investment in Blue Green Water Technology, a startup that keeps our water safe. Global water supplies are under attack from toxic algae blooms, making water undrinkable. Blue Green's proprietary EPA-approved technology eliminates the toxic algae poisoning the world's water resources. You can get in early on Blue Green and other unique opportunities at ourcrowd.com slash velonews. If you're interested in investing, you need to join Our Crowd. The Our Crowd account is free. Just go to ourcrowd.com slash velonews. Hello, Vela News listeners. This is Dan Cavallari, tech editor at Bell News, coming at you with another tech podcast. And today we're talking chains. Chains are, chains are an interesting little bit of gear. You know, we, we sort of take it for granted. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it seems like this pretty simple thing, right? Like it's the, it's the one component where we don't think a whole lot about it. Is it, is it the right amount of speeds? Okay. Slap it on. Let's do it. Uh, but there's actually a lot of components to a chain and it, it's, responsible for a lot of, uh, uh, ensuring that your, your drivetrain shifts properly, uh, and you don't have a bad day on the bike. So I kind of wanted to get to, um, to somebody who understood the anatomy of a chain, where we've been, where we're going, uh, and what makes a good chain or what makes chains different from each other, really. Uh, so today on the line, I have Nick Murdick. And Nick is the uh, mountain bike project manager over at uh, a small company you might have heard of, Shimano. Uh, is it Shimano or Shimano? Sh- Shimano. We're going to go Shimano. Hi, Nick. How you doing?
1: I'm awesome.
0: How are you? I'm good. Good. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining me. You're in Southern California, and yeah. you know here you're on Skype. Here you're wearing a T-shirt. It's snowing here in Colorado, and I'm freezing in my basement. <laughs> so uh, I automatically hate you right off the bat. <laughs> we
1: we did get into the 80s this week. Whoa! Too, just to rub that in.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised you're not wearing a sweater. Then I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) um nick you know you you uh you spend a lot of time on the mountain bike side primarily but i think there's probably a lot that translates between mountain bike and gravel and road uh in terms of chain construction and all that so we're gonna we're gonna kind of get into that but before we we even get to that uh let's start really broad uh what what are the it's it's funny to think of this that there are components to a chain but what are the components basic components of a chain and how do they work
1: uh, yeah, good question. Uh, Cause, uh, uh, I'm surprised at how many people are, uh, are still surprised by the answer Right. that, uh, like if you're installing a chain on your bike and you got to shorten it and cut off some of those links, like they're all still connected to each other. Right. But if you, uh, if you drive out a couple more of those pins, you'll be surprised on what has been hiding there <laughs> the entire time. Yes. Um, and, uh, so, uh, what usually gets people is the uh, what the inner plates are going to look like. So, mm-hmm. the it's fairly obvious that the the chain is a series of outer links and inner links, and there are rollers uh, around all of the the pins. What's uh, what's going on there? If we dig a little bit deeper, is those uh, those outer plates are what the pins are pressed into. So, there's a like there's no rotation going on between the outer plates and the pins. Mm-hmm. All of the rotation is the inner plate wrapping around the pin. Um, and the uh, the roller is what rolls on to and off of all the the teeth so it's not just like a a clever name where the thing it's called a roller because it can spin around in circles like it literally does roll onto and off of all of the teeth of the of the gear but inside of that uh there used to be uh a bushing in the chain and now we have bushingless chains so the uh the inner plate has actually got these little shoulders built into it and uh uh, and that's essentially it's holding the two inner plates apart, creating a surface for the roller to ride on. And that's what the the inner plates are riding on a bigger surface than you would think mm-hmm. on top of the pin. So it's yeah. not just like a plate that's riding on the pin. It's a whole like shouldered surface, right. Um, so outer plates that don't move inner plates that do move uh, a roller and a pin. So we got.
0: you you mentioned those bushings. Um, in terms of timeline, how long ago did we get away from those bushings?
1: Uh, it was surprisingly recent. Cause I've, I feel like, uh, this was something that I heard about when I was coming up as a bike mechanic and I started turning wrenches in about 99 or 2000. Mm-hmm. But like, there's this ancient technology called the bushing chain and that's why they're <laughs> called bushing lists or bushless chains now. Yeah, uh, yeah. 1981. Yeah. That's when bushingless chains became popular. On yeah, bicycles. Yeah.
0: As a, uh, as somebody who worked in shops in the late nineties, early two thousands, I remember working on, Chains with bushings, and mm. and a fun fact about chains with bushings is, is when you push that pin out too far, the bushings go everywhere. <laughs> so if if you go in a bike shop that's been around long enough and you look around the floor long enough, you probably find a few of them. Um, yeah. But yeah, now everything is is um, is a little more streamlined, uh, and the, you know you talked about the ramped plates and all that, or the uh, like the chamfered plates, um, and I want to get to that in a minute too because uh, I think that that's sort of a good. Uh, jumping off point for you know how how chains have evolved so let's go through the brief history of the chain um where do we start uh, and and where are we now i mean you've got bikes have had chains since the beginning right
1: yeah yeah so i mean i'm not like a professional historian but i've got a collection of uh, cool old books on the shelf like yeah. uh, like the dancing chain and if you want the, the real story and the pictures that go along with it like for sure go pick that thing I agree. Uh, but uh, I agree. yeah but basically, I mean, you can picture maybe a lot of people know that the first bikes didn't have pedals on them at all. You just like uh, the draisine or the Hobby Horse or mm-hmm. whatever that mm-hmm. uh, you just kind of kick on the ground. And so they uh, uh, and then that bike famously was invented in the early 1800s. I think 1817 was the first one. So right. pedals started showing up on. Uh, just attached directly to the front wheel in about 1860. And then that was when things started picking up steam. So um, chains and belts had already been used in other kind of uh, uh, industries. And uh, so they started playing with those on propelling a bike forward. And uh, But, you know, the belt had the problem of not being as efficient. And you've got to tension both sides of the belt instead of just the top side. And uh, and it can slip, and if there's any grit in there, like dirt or mud, then it's the slipping gets a whole lot worse. Sure. And you can already kind of see the the way that those problems have been solved with modern like Gates belt drive. That's another animal. But mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, so uh, pedals on front wheels, and then in order to go faster, we got the penny farthing. Um, and uh, and chains were kind of uh, starting to come around, and it was like the Wild West of chain patents in uh, in like the 1860s, 1880s, that kind of time frame. Um, and uh, and yeah, bushing chains were around, um, but they weren't really meant for bicycles. So it wasn't really until uh, like right around 1900 mm-hmm. that uh, we started seeing. Uh, what we would consider kind of a modern chain mm-hmm. on a on a bike and then there were different constructions and um i mean actually i think the other great example is uh schwinn was using um a block chain where that whole uh structure of the inner link plates and rollers was basically replaced by a big old block of of metal mm-hmm. and so you would just have outer plates and so there would only be the teeth that would interface with the outer links and mm-hmm. then you'd have a stiff tooth um chain ring yeah. so uh, uh And those were used for uh for track racing and on like cruisers on Schwin's uh well into the fifties hmm. interesting
0: and and a lot of that i mean I feel like the evolution of the chain has it was sort of subtle uh for a very long time and then it seemed like we started adding well even before we started adding gears uh well actually that's not true we started adding gears, and then things you know to shift those gears came along. Uh, And Mm -hmm. derailers uh, eventually sort of complicated matters. Um, Yeah. Can we talk about how uh, the chain itself uh, changed in terms of, uh, uh, you know, dimensions and function with the advent of things like derailers?
1: Yeah. And maybe actually a good thing to just touch on, uh, because if you don't know what a bushing chain is, you might be a little in the dark right now. Sure, sure basically picture that those inner plates were just flat pieces just like the outer plates are um so what's holding them part it, apart is basically a tube that's pressed into the outer plates mm-hmm. so uh, um, the whole thing kind of functions as a single unit, and then there's a tube that's fully wrapped around the, the chain pin um, that uh, uh, restricts the like lateral flexibility of the chain. So a bushingless chain uh, was actually a big step forward in uh, in making derailleur bikes shift better. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, it coming in eighty one was a was good timing. It was just a few years before that that Shimano introduced a technology called Uniglide, which mm-hmm. was uh, some uh, some bulging of the chain plates and some twisting of the teeth on the on the, the freewheel or the, the very first cassettes were coming out mm-hmm. around that time as mm-hmm. well we invented that in 78 for uh, for a durace group mm-hmm. um and uh yeah so that took us up to hyperglide which was the real big next step forward and uh um it's uh it's an interesting story to look back on because that was really about uh the first time that a computer was used to help design uh some mechanical piece uh at shimano yeah. and uh um so it's uh this intricate timing of shift gates and ramps on the on the cassette uh, so that the chain can uh uh move to the next larger cog before it's left the previous smaller cog Mm -hmm. so for just a moment it's engaged with two cogs at the same time and you get this nice smooth shift so that came in 86 and that took us for a while uh so uh so hyperglide was a lot smoother and uh it kind of started to standardize chains um and then uh as we moved into nine speeds things were uh Getting kind of just marginally better, like manufacturing tolerances were getting a little better, or maybe manufacturing techniques were getting a little bit more advanced. Mm-hmm. So we could start asking for more of the chain. So uh in terms of Shimano development, it was when 10 speeds came around that we started throwing some fancy stuff at the chain, and that's kind of is what's going to bring us into the present day. So with our 10-speed Durace and XDR groups, we introduced uh mountain and road specific chains and uh, uh, and outer chain plates that were specific to either front shifting or rear shifting, um, with a couple of little concepts at, at play there that uh, road bikes tend to have a bigger jump between the chain rings. And so maybe you need some more aggressive uh, chamfering on the. Uh, Uh, On the chain plates to both help it shift up to the the next larger cog shift or chain ring next smaller chain ring uh, When you're shifting back down without overshifting and ejecting Mm -hmm. um, And then to not catch the teeth on the chain ring when you're cross chained stuff like that Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, so there's kind of an example of how we could use outside plates for front shifting inboard plates for rear shifting Um, we uh, had a little bit different approach for the rear shifting, though, where uh, the big difference between the road and mountain chain was that the the road chain, we were looking for a smoother shift, um, and uh, cadence tends to be a little bit higher on road, and you right. can kind of get away with, uh, with the shift being a little bit slower and still being... Uh, adequately fast Mm uh so by designing the road chains to wait for the shift gate to come around they would shift a little bit more smoothly uh the drivetrain would be a little bit more durable and in mountain biking you tend to have more like panic shifts and so (laughs) the mountain bike chains on the inboard side of it were uh were designed to be a little bit more aggressive and grab that next cog immediately and so that's why uh Uh, Every once in a while, uh, somebody who's like studying history will ask, How come the Saint Group uses the mountain bike chain if it uses a road cassette? Right. And it's because of the way that you ride a mountain bike versus a road bike. Right. So it wasn't cassette compatibility. But that's, um, that was kind of the start of it. The, uh, uh, so kind of the same thing with, 11 speeds uh we finally got to a point where we could stick uh road features and mountain bike features on the same chain and we did that with the unification of 11 speed chains like there originally was a dura ace chain but when the xtr uh 11 speed group came out they all got unified into mm-hmm. just the, the the chains that are still current the hg yeah. 901 six hundred one. okay um, and then the uh the latest big step forward was with hyperglide plus so now uh um, where the original Hyperglide was basically built into the cassette. Like that shifting technology, the smooth shifting, was all about uh, the profiles of the teeth on the cassette. And Hyperglide Plus is basically looking at what, uh, what happens if we make a chain that's dedicated to a cassette. And uh, so those guys have the, uh, the inner plates actually extended out into the space where the outer plates live. So the inner plates are now touching every single cog instead of every other tooth on the on the cog or chain ring oh, um, and so that's kind of the, the fundamental difference and so we're using that uh to get those uh those hyperglide style shifts as you're moving down to a smaller cog mm. as well which is uh, considerably more difficult to do
0: sure sure so there's a lot of lots to unpack there and I, I guess i want to go way way back to uh one of the first things you said which was about uh how you know uh there is a, a a fair bit of lateral play in a chain, and I think that's something that's often overlooked is that we think of chains as a linear uh, motion component, but it's not necessarily just that it's it, in order to get between cogs there has to be some some lateral give and so that mm-hmm. seemed, that's sort of uh, baked into the construction of the chain correct
1: uh it is now yeah yeah
0: yeah, and so early on it was not and and I think that's one of the things that that you know needs to be kind of pointed out there is that uh you a lot of people i remember when i was working in bike shops it was interesting to have people come in and say hey is my chain worn out and they'd show me the lateral flex in it i'm like well it's supposed to move you know laterally <laughs> like you know that doesn't necessarily mean it's worn out it's actually to help improve uh movement from cog to cog and so the 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 common misconception that I've encountered from from people who who maybe are just sort of the the type who are like, I'm just gonna get on and pedal and let the mechanics worry about everything else is that um, yeah, the, that the chain only moves in one direction and and the chain is sort of this living beast. it's like it's 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 got a spine that articulates essentially. Um, and I think that gets back to what you guys have done to sort of um, shape the plates. Uh, to facilitate that lateral movement. And and I guess I one question for you is that um is there something to that where somebody can, you know, move that chain laterally and say, "Hey, maybe my chain's worn out." Do chains wear that way?
1: They absolutely do and uh and this is very rarely talked about. Um so uh uh this is uh this is not by any means contradicting what you just said, but uh
0: Go please that- contradict away. <laughs>
1: Shimano chains are the have the least amount of lateral flexibility than any other chain does. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we had not enough lateral flexibility with a bushing chain. As soon as we went to bushingless, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the two, the thing that replaced the bushing, the shoulder on the inner plate, like those aren't attached to each other. So mm-hmm. there's a good amount of movement that can happen between those two sides. Mm-hmm. And so your tolerances there, uh, and between the roller and the, and the shoulder on the inner plates, um, that uh that has a lot to do with the uh uh well a lot of things the speed of the chain how well it holds on to lubrication and the lateral flexibility mm-hmm. so it's very easy to make a chain with lateral a lot of lateral flexibility now mm-hmm. uh, it's actually better to reduce that a good amount like we want the right amount sure. of lateral flexibility so um the uh, yeah it's difficult to test because you basically would need to take the chain off of the bike but uh um what uh Uh, A good illustration is that uh, if you take a chain off a bike and lay it sideways on a table so that like all the the outer plates are touching the the surface of the the table, not like the rollers, the Mm -hmm. ends of them Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and pick up the chain with both hands in the middle, you'll see it droop down on either side. If uh, if it gets to the point where it's hanging slack on both sides, that chain's basically got too much lateral flexibility. Um, and there are plenty of chains out on the market that uh, even brand new out of the box, not only would they hang loose like that, but uh, you'd be able to wrap the thing all the way around into a circle.
0: Wow. Um,
1: so, uh, so we want to minimize that lateral flexibility, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, so people don't talk about it that much because that's not the typically the thing that uh that people care about the most right like you're you're monitoring a chain for wear by uh taking a look at its elongation or its stretch and uh if it has stretched then it has also got too much lateral flexibility so um the uh uh, the argument could be made and uh, and John Barnett actually had this, uh, this stance, the, you know, the founder of the Barnett Bicycle yeah, yeah. Institute in Colorado Springs, like uh, uh, kind of spearheaded mechanic education in a lot of ways um, that uh, that was kind of his position was that uh, 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 shifting performance starts to suffer once there is more lateral flexibility in a chain. So that wear actually is noticeable by the rider first than the, compared to the elongation, but you would need to be awfully picky about your shifting performance for that to be like a a motivating factor to replace your chain, but it's a good reason to not wait until the end of the useful life of the chain to Mm -hmm. replace it.
0: Mm -hmm. Has that changed? uh, I mean, do you, it seems like you're limiting lateral movement more now. Does that have something to do with going to a broader range of gears uh, and the fact that people are more likely to be cross chaining
1: now? for sure it does yeah um and uh uh so too much lateral flexibility and you end up with uh say you're riding in a really cross-chain position like a big chain ring on a roto gravel bike and uh and the big cog in the back and then you drop down to the small chain ring um if there's too much lateral flexibility there'll be kind of like a rebound effect when the chain is dropping from the big ring to the small ring mm-hmm. and it's more likely to just come off altogether. so yeah. there's probably the most obvious example. Sure.
0: And and I guess uh you know I I grew up in the era of cross-chaining is bad. And and I think that still holds true. Um but I think also drivetrains are more capable now. Uh is it is cross-chaining still bad?
1: <laughs> we uh, very subtly. Uh, and I, we actually got a few complaints from dealers at the time. I can't remember what generation it was, but we, we no longer, uh, made the little warning in the instructions saying that you can't ride in like the biggest chain ring and the biggest cogs. Hmm. Uh, I think it was with 10 speed Dura ace. Maybe that was the, the 9,000 group was the first one where that warning came out of the, the, the dealer manual or uh, user manual at the time. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, so we still have the restriction that you shouldn't use the small chain ring in the smallest cogs, but nobody really wants to do that. Right. Uh, we kind of <laughs> recognize that riders, like it is hugely beneficial to be able to stay on the big chain ring as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more efficient if the chain is wrapped around larger cogs and, uh, and it's less disruptive to your riding too, right? Like you have to do a correction shift when you're dropping from the, the big ring to the small ring. And so we're re- really always talking about two or three shifts. Um, and uh and it feels like your feet are dropping out or the pedals are dropping out from underneath your your feet when right. you do that front shift. so right. if uh, if you're on a on a climb and you're close to the top and uh, and you know you can clear it if you stay in the big chain ring as long as you cross chain, then mm. that's immensely valuable. So we started trying to, well, set that as a target in drivetrain development sure. and achieved it back mm-hmm.
0: then. Nick, we're going to we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, I do have a couple more questions about the expansion of the, the, the gear ranges that we have now and, and even the jump to things like one by uh, and how that might affect the chain. Uh, so we'll get back to that in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. and We'll be right back. In today's market, most of us don't have access to invest early in the private companies that create big returns. With our crowd, you get access to invest early in high-vetted deals on pre-IPO companies alongside professional venture capitalists, like Blue Green Water Technologies that is eliminating poisonous algae from water resources all over the globe. You can get in early on Blue Green and other opportunities at OurCrowd.com slash VeloNews. Your OurCrowd account is free. Just go to O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash VeloNews. All right, we're back with Nick Murdoch from Shimano. Uh, Nick, you know, probably the biggest story in drivetrains aside from, you know, uh, electronic shifting and wireless shifting in the last few years has just been this constant addition of cogs. <laughs> <laughs> to the <laughs> rear cassette and and you know more more drivetrains going one by um and you know we, we we've we heard rumors about maybe some new shimano stuff coming out in the near future um i want to talk about how that expansion of if if that expansion of the cassette in the rear and then the elimination of a chain ring up front uh has changed the design itself of a chain or were the chains already sort of in a place where they could accommodate those kinds of stresses?
1: Uh well the versatility of a chain is uh, kind of remains important to us. Um we uh I don't think that I'm uh, telling any tales out of school by saying that we were uh a little bit behind with the adoption of one by on the mountain bike side. Sure. And uh um a lot of that comes from recognizing that we had a, a distinct advantage with front shifting technology sure. um, and uh uh so the the you know, when the new XTR 12 speed group came out, it still had front derailleur options, even though we don't really sell them aside from some very limited spec. Um, but, uh, but everything is designed for both uh, single and double applications. So those, uh, those 12 speed chains have, uh, have still got, uh, all of that technology I was talking about, about, uh, front and rear shifting, uh, specific designs. Now we're able to fit them on both sides of the chain. So it doesn't matter which way you put it on anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Uh, So, yeah, there are clever solutions to almost everything. I mean, there was a a problem just uh, a generation ago uh, with 11-speed components where... um, and basically, no matter who the drivetrain manufacturer was, if you were in your, you know, your one chain ring up front and the largest cog in the back, and then you pedaled backwards, the chain would skate down the cassette. And that's yeah. basically been solved with technology. Like, first, it got solved by moving the chain line from 53 to 52 millimeters. And um, now it's not a problem. We can go all the way out to 55 with uh, Uh, with the new drivetrain systems okay
0: uh and and i guess you've already touched on this a little bit but uh aside from you know we talked about that lateral play and how you know you could take some brand new chains out of a box and it'll loop all the way around what what makes a chain better than than another chain i mean what are what are the other subtle differences you know you mentioned some of that flex as one of them what are what are some of the other differences between chains that might make one better than another
1: Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of it is, uh, I would say like from manufacturer to manufacturer, it's, uh, it's tolerances and techniques. Um, it, uh, things, there used to be a lot more parity when, uh, uh, so eight speed chains, for example, the way that that little shoulder was formed into the inner plate was, it was kind of just stamped through. So if you took one of those chains apart, you'd see this nice rounded transition, um, to build that little shoulder and you take apart a 12 speed chain and it is a 90 degree corner in wow. there. So, um, we have, uh, uh, that's how we can continue to add durability to chains, even though they're getting narrower, right? Mm-hmm. It's because uh, people rightly point to uh, the reduction of surface area contact between the pin and the rest of the chain, but it's actually been increasing with every generation, not decreasing. Interesting. Um, I, f- I feel like I just got off uh, track a little bit there. Oh, right. <laughs> Subtle differences between... <laughs> um, Between chains out there. So the, the level of precision that you have with forming the chain plates, that's a big separator from manufacturer to manufacturer. And that is quite literally how we are able to have, uh, uh, class leading durability in a lot of ways with a a great balance with, uh, speed and lubrication holding and stuff too. Like it's always a, a whole picture, but, uh, uh that the lateral flexibility that i talked about like it's coming from the level of precision that we're able to maintain um for the uh, the rest of it like if you look inside of a line it's usually about uh surface treatment and then top of the line chains will have hollow pins which Mm uh are a little bit lighter but they're also stronger too which is maybe a common misconception that hollow pins are weaker
0: Hmm. how does that work why, why are hollow pins uh stronger
1: Well, if you think about the way that uh, chain breaks, it doesn't break from the pin, like cracking down the middle. So the strength of the pin is not our limiting factor. Chains break when outer plates come off the ends of pins. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so those pins aren't just pressed into the outer plates and then Call it a day. Uh, they're peened after they're they're put in, so it flares out the end of the the chain pin, and that's how you get a nice strong connection uh, between the plate and the pin. And hollow pins, you can peen them more effectively because you can get a tool down inside the thing. Right.
0: Interesting. So, and that actually segues nicely into my next question, which almost never happens on this show. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, what what are you know? You talked about the pins and and how it's it's a common misconception that uh, hollow pins are weaker. Um, what are some other common misconceptions about chains? I mean, we've heard all sorts of things over the years about, you know, cross chaining is horrible. Uh, this lube is better than this lube. No, this lube is better than this lube. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you can't reuse master links. Can you sort through some of those things and um, tell us some, some things that people believe about chains that just aren't true?
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah. I've got a couple of them ready to go. Oh, honestly. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cause I've been hearing them for years. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I uh, hope this isn't too controversial to mention it, but uh, I hear a good amount that uh, KMC makes all of Shimano's chains, ah. and uh, um, it's not a hundred percent true. So the the kind of the implication there uh-huh. uh, is that uh, if KMC is making Shimano chains, then obviously they're perfectly interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that's not really the case. So I'll tell you what the, the real case is. And you, anybody could find this out if they went to KMC's global website. Like You can look at their catalog and see uh, the licensed Shimano chains that they produce for us. And um, there's nothing that says Durace or XTR is getting made by KMC. Uh, none of the 12-speed stuff is being made by KMC um, so, uh, so we tend to, uh, to move our older and lower end chains into their facility. So they produce them for us. That does not mean that they have access to any of our intellectual property either. Gotcha. Uh, so, uh, so they are still different chains and the the top of the line current stuff is totally separate from that. Um, so, uh, so there is a performance difference and compatibility difference between, mm-hmm kmc and shimano chains you put a kmc 12 speed chain on a hyperglide plus cassette and you no longer have hyperglide plus shifting interesting Um, so uh that doesn't mean the kmc chains are bad like obviously we think very highly of them if we give them our business sure sure. um but uh so it really uh, the common misconception is that they're identical because they're made in the same building gotcha gotcha Um, and uh so some other ones i got i think maybe the most uh common question we get is uh, about the factory lube the grease that comes packed yeah. on the chain oh that's a good um, one i had heard for years and this was frustrating when i came to shimano and finally got the real story like the story in the bike shop was man those chains come over on a boat from japan like it takes a month to cross the water they'd rust if they weren't packed in grease it's just to keep them from rusting you got to remove all that grease and then right. move on with your life but uh if you've ever bought one of our chains you'll also notice that it's in a sealed plastic bag like right. They could be towing them behind the boat and they would not have (laughs) a best. So it is a lubricant. Uh um, And we apply it because we have the opportunity to lubricate a chain differently than you do after you put it together. So the chain pieces are lubricated before they're assembled. Hmm. um, And that's how we can get grease in all the right places. It's a very durable grease and it's a very good lubricant. Mm -hmm. Um, So... uh, uh, that could segue into all kinds of uh, philosophical debates about uh, how to treat the factory grease. But it is, let me just leave it at uh, Shimano intends for it to be a lubricant. Um, if you don't want to use it, then uh, we kind of want you to be happy with the product. Um, the uh, uh, the other, I think, misconceptions are are about lubricants. Those are kind of the, the other ones that are really frustrating, because you don't get really much help from the packaging of the of the the chain lubes Uh um and uh so basically people understand that there are dry lubes and wet lubes Mm -hmm. i would say that maybe the the biggest misconception is that dry lubes are for dry conditions and wet lubes are for wet conditions like there are dry lubes that hold up fine in wet conditions and wet lubes are not just for wet conditions at all i i use wet lubes almost exclusively Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh uh there is kind of a uh to lay it out there without trying to go down the rabbit hole too much. Um, some inherent differences that wet lubes are basically all interchangeable with each other. That is, if you're using a wet lube, uh, you can mix it with the factory grease. It's basically on the same kind of playing field, um, and you can use different weights of wet lube. So you'll see uh, a company like Pedro's, I think they only actually call the, their sin lube a wet lube, but... Uh, but change and old go product uh those were wet lubes as well so Mm -hmm. it actually was really nice because if you were using one of the products then it was totally like modular like you're going to go ride in the rain one day then up it to the sin lube and if you're you want your bike to run cleaner then clean your chain and and start using the lighter weight stuff after that um and uh Uh, and then the flip side of that is basically all dry lubes are not interchangeable, Mm -hmm. even if they're, uh, different kinds of wax lube, they, uh, they could be a different, like a wax is a pretty generic term. Um, so they're not necessarily going to get along together. And if you are going to apply a dry lube to the chain, uh, you basically need to remove any kind of lubricant from the chain. Like it's not going to get along with the factory grease. And I think this is why white lightning got such a bad reputation as being like one of the first big commercial successes of a uh of a wax-based lube was Mm -hmm. that people were just putting it on and they called it self-cleaning because if you put all that on the package that hey in order to use this product properly you need to remove your chain from the bike and soak it in mineral spirits or something um and uh uh, completely remove the lubricant and if you are out in an event and you notice that your chain's squeaking you can't just go to the nearest mechanic and ask for some lube for the chain it has to be the same stuff every time um so that incompatibility mm-hmm. among dry lube, kind of the the one outlier is Dumont Tech, which is kind of a dry lube, mm-hmm. um, but it's also compatible with everything else out there because it just works differently. Yeah, like sure. it's a liquid that polymerizes and kind of turns to uh, something else on the surface yeah, of yeah. The, the chain pieces, so yeah. it can be combined with stuff. Right.
0: So like to uh, to to separate uh, just one sort of confusing thing here is that you know yes. He, he, you mentioned the the lube that comes from the factory um and it's important to note that shimano's factory treatment is different than other companies factory treatment so what you're saying about that that lube you know coming from your factory that doesn't necessarily apply to your competitors stuff uh, uh, you know in the same way so uh the the Shimano uh, f- film that you that you get it actually feels different than some of the competitors. Like if you take a SRAM chain out of the the box, it's it's there's is a little bit stickier and, and it feels different. So just 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 to sort of delineate between you know what you're saying there, and it's not an across the board uh, thing. Um, but also what's what I guess we should make crystal clear to people is is it okay then for them to take it out of the package, put it on the bike, and start riding? Because that factory it, lube is there.
1: That's what I do. It yeah. Is, yeah. I, I don't put chain lube on my bike until it needs it. Right. So fresh chains. Um, I mean, and if you're, if you live in Southern California and ride right on the pavement, there is a good chance that you can get through the entire life of the chain without adding chain lube. Really? It De- depends on a lot of factors, but yeah. it is possible.
0: Interesting. Uh, and so the other thing I wanted to mention was that, yes, with certain lubes, it is very, very important that you clean, 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 clean your chain before you apply it um, because not all lubes, like you said, are interchangeable. They don't all work together. Um, so, you know, if you really want to get, you know, for, for most people, they just want it to be quiet. <laughs> and I think, yeah. you, you know, you can accomplish that by simply throwing some lube, any lube on a chain. But if you're really, you know, we've, we've gotten to a point in, in bicycles now where we're measuring, you know, fractions of a watt you know and in that case if if you're that kind of person and you're you know you're racing then yes it it definitely uh makes it worthwhile to clean the chain and clean the components as as much as you can honestly before every race if you could but i mean who who wants to do that (laughs) you know Mm. um
1: well there uh yeah that actually is a a good point that uh cleanliness is kind of as important as, uh, as lubrication. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so if you are riding through like soupy mud is kind of the worst, most abrasive thing, because there's mm-hmm. plenty of liquid to, uh, deliver basically grit to all yeah. parts of the, of the bike. So after a ride like that, like Jane needs to be cleaned. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh yeah, please go ahead.
0: Oh, so I, I, mean, I guess, uh, you know, given that we know, you know the chain does have weaknesses, right? Like it has to be clean, and you know, and that grit and dirt can work in and and really affect. Uh, to be redundant, the effectiveness of of your drivetrain. I mean, is there is the chain the best component for a drivetrain? Is it the most efficient way to create a drivetrain? Are there better chain, uh, you know, choices out there? Like we've seen, uh, carbon uh, carbon drive, Gates carbon drive, and 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 belts and belt systems like that. Um, which you know, I think it took off with a certain subset of riders, but really haven't taken off the way um, chains have 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 done so. And you know, we saw Ceramic Speed come out with their uh, system a couple of years ago at Eurobike, where um, you know it was like a, a a drive bar that went to the the cassette rather than a chain. Um, is the chain the most efficient tool for a drivetrain? And if if it isn't, why haven't we moved on from it?
1: Uh, well, I think it depends on what your priorities are and, um, it's, uh, this is always a fun lesson to learn that the bike industry is, is always recycling ideas. I mean, drive shafts, was kind of the other competing, um, propulsion system with belts and chains back in the, in the mid to late 1800s, right? Like they, they've been around for a long time. And there are drive shaft bikes on the market now, but they tend to be, um, you know, European city bikes where, uh, keeping the, the grease or dirt off of your pants is the most important thing. Right, right. Um, so, uh, a belt is great if, uh, if cleanliness and, uh, um, never needing to lubricate the chain and silencer are your priorities, but, uh, if uh if efficiency is your priority then the chain is is so efficient that it's been very tough to top it obviously we would have if we could have sure um and and i mean it's the same thing with uh internal transmissions or internally geared hubs is Mm -hmm. that uh it's just plain not as efficient as driving one gear at a time Mm -hmm. um so always on the lookout but uh uh It's hard for me to imagine what that thing would be. Obviously, if I could, then I would have an even higher position inside of (laughs) Shimano and maybe would be able to retire. Yeah.
0: yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess that and that sort of answers my next question in a way. You know, what does the future of chains look like as drivetrains continue to expand gearing options? uh, Riders demand more of their components. I mean, will the will the chain still look the same as it does now in five years or will it be? replaced entirely will will it just be incremental refinements what what do we what can we expect uh as as drive drive chains become you know wider ranging and more
1: more complex Mm -hmm. um what's a good question i I think that we'll see um more good chains out there um that it'll be easier to get up to like a, a premium level so consumers will have more choices um we're uh we're gonna at the same time though keep going down the road of more and more like co-development between gears and chains so that they like need to match each other mm-hmm. um so uh so it kind of depends on the system that you're you're talking about um i think that we'll also see uh precision continue to increase which mm-hmm. will basically uh, continue to increase chain durability so uh I think that that's where we've got room for improvement still, is that we can still make chains last longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that seems like maybe the most likely step forward is that we'll get to a point where chains can last thousands of miles without mm-hmm. needing to be replaced.
0: Interesting. And so, I mean, is there anything else about chains that we didn't talk about that you think is important for our listeners to to understand or to to know before they you know they plunked down a lot of cash to upgrade their drivetrain or to just you know swap out their their worn out you know chains mm-hmm. cassette rings and all that
1: you- um well i mean there's a million things that i left out and okay. um, <laughs> i think that's maybe that's a good lesson actually is that uh, there is always more to learn mm-hmm. um and uh, uh you can go down the rabbit hole so l- this is kind of why i love talking about chains and why i wanted to do this like i uh i used to work in the education department at shimano and chains were always my favorite subject to talk about because you could just go on forever Mm -hmm. and ever and ever um in terms of uh shopping i mean i would say match the chain brand to the drivetrain brand and if you've got uh a mixture of components then um it uh it might depend on what you've got. So if you've got uh, multiple chain rings in the front, it's usually more important for the chain to match the chain ring brand. And if you have a single front chain ring in the front, obviously it's more important for the chain to match the cassette brand. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's kind of... Oh, the other like important shopping advice is that uh, it's always worth it to spend more money on the chain. Um, it uh, We're fairly careful about making sure that the extra money you spend on the chain will actually... Uh pay for itself right hmm. that uh if a chain costs twenty percent more than the model below it, then you're gonna get more than twenty percent more life hmm. out of it so uh that really like if you're if you found that your chain wore out too quick, then by all means go get the top of the line one and it will last longer huh. the next time,
0: okay well, that's good to know i mean it, and honestly, I think that more than more than anything else, I think for the everyday writer. Who's not seeking out every last quarter of a watt? I mean, I think that's what they're really seeking out, right? Which which chain's gonna shift good enough for me, but also last a long time so I don't have to spend, you know, X amount of dollars on it too quickly. Um, so that's that's a good that's a good lesson to take away here is that, you know, if you do want that longevity, it, it is worth investing uh in, in the higher end chains.
1: Mm-hmm. Um they're actually I think this topic comes up from time to time about uh, the speed of a chain and our chains are relatively efficient but uh, we are always looking for bal- that right balance between speed and durability and a lot of it has to do with the way that lubrication flows through a chain like how big the openings are the you know the less contact there is the faster it'll be mm-hmm. but it'll also be less durable because of that and kind of can be two sides of the, sure. the coin. Not necessarily mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think the other fortunate thing is that for a lot of people who are going to end up with a Shimano chain, they probably have it because they bought a Shimano-equipped bike. So, <laughs> you know, in that sense, I mean, Shimano and, and SRAM and, and a lot of, you know, the, the the biggest manufacturers out there, you know, you guys design all this stuff as a system and so you have control over those parameters and so it's, it shouldn't be too surprising that, you know, a Shimano chain is likely to work best with a Shimano drivetrain system and things like that. Um, Not to say you couldn't use other things, but if you're looking for the most efficient, you know, setup, it's probably within the same brand um, because because the brand itself has controlled the design parameters. That, does that sound right, or am I pulling that out of? My
1: yeah, way? I think um, it uh, is real easy to to brag about our chain technology and say that they're the best. But at the, the end of the day, I really want the the power of choice to be in the consumer's hands, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, um, just like somebody might compromise when specking a bike and putting on a cheaper chain because they care more about the, the cost than the durability or the performance or the brand or anything like that. Um, you might make that same kind of decision yourself if you look at uh, some test and find that somebody else's chain uh, is more efficient than one of our chains and you're willing to give up some shifting performance and potentially durability in order to get that then cool you just made a different decision than we did right <laughs> um that's fun it's up to you yeah. yeah yeah
0: cool well thank nick thanks for uh, for all the great info here it's it's always fun to kind of pick out those components of a bicycle that are just far more complex than i think people give them credit for and i think the chain is just really the the perfect example of that and uh, so i think you dispelled a lot of good myths today
1: <laughs> times i've saved kind of one is like the parting shot if oh you, if you don't mind is it, wait, is, goes it, back to the,
0: is it a parting shot at me do i have to protect myself here
1: no no no, oh. no. <laughs> um, your ugly it's, face
0: it's, i can't stand it at, yeah. okay
1: at the at the hatred for wet lube right like i yeah. said that pedro's doesn't write it on on the the bottles except for the ones meant for really extreme conditions because yeah. they know they won't sell it if it's right. called wet lube but mm-hmm. uh so i hope they're not mad at me for exposing them and saying that they have a ton of <laughs> wet lubes in their line but yeah. uh um really the the key to being happy with them because the complaint is that they're they're too messy mm-hmm. um and, uh, and the way that people apply them, the, in order to make them less messy, they'll maybe even put them on one drop at a time on every roller, and then they'll uh, they'll take it for a quick spin, and then they'll come back and they'll wipe down the, the chain, and then they'll think that they've done everything that they can to keep it as clean as possible. But the, the excess lube is still going to seep out, and then it's going to be on the outside of the chain again before you go for the next ride. So really, if, if you want to have uh, uh, a very quiet, uh, Drive train with a very durable lubricant then a wet lube is probably going to make you happier And if you want it to run cleaner Just keep a rag next to the bike and wipe it down before every ride and you will be amazed at the difference mm-hmm. like it It will be clean and dry like a dry lubed chain will be but you can do water crossings without having to worry about it And if you forget before the next ride, then there's no consequence like you can get hundreds and hundreds of miles out of a wet Lube mm-hmm. application and it can still be clean. Yeah
0: I'm a big fan of no consequences. All right. Well, you heard it here, <laughs> clean, and you know, clean, clean, clean. I mean, that's that's it's a hard lesson to learn, and God, I am really bad at it too. But yeah, I think there's the best way, the best thing you can do to treat your bike real nice is to clean it uh, thoroughly and frequently. And that said, Nick, thank you again. Uh all right, thank for, you. for all of you guys uh listening if you have questions about this episode of the tech podcast or any of the other podcasts in the velo news world feel free to reach out to me dcavaleri at velonews.com. you can also find me on social media at brown tie dan that's on instagram and twitter uh and i would be more than happy to uh answer whatever questions i can for you but more importantly if you have Uh, suggestions for topics you'd like me to cover on a future episode of the News Tech Podcast, I would absolutely love to hear it. So please do reach out. Nick, thank you once again for joining me today. Appreciate it.
1: All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And for you listening, thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you next time.